0: are listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And we're looking together at verses 12 through 17. You'll find this on page 1031 of the Pew Bible. And that's Revelation 6, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Well, this is, as we found at the beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from him, it is about him, it is for him. And having addressed the seven churches, he reveals the throne that is established in heaven. And on that throne sits the Lord of glory, who is full of splendor and majesty, reigning supreme. And in his right hand, you'll remember there is a scroll written within and on the back that contains the entire history of the world. And it appeared at one point that there was no one worthy to take that scroll and open its seals, and therefore there would be no redemption because history would not have unfolded. But then the Son of God stepped up, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, who is the lamb that was slain. And the angel proclaimed that he is worthy to take and open the scroll. And after peals of thunderous praise from every creature, Jesus broke open the seals. And with that first he trad the four horsemen rode in judgment under his direction, you remember. And with the fifth seal, the glorified souls of the martyrs anticipated the consummation. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood? And in response to that petition, Christ opens the sixth, seal, which reveals the great day of his wrath. And of course, with vivid imagery, it presents a striking picture of divine justice at work. One commentator says, after humanity has rejected God's kindness for millennia, the dam of God's patience breaks and judgment floods the earth. And that of which the four horsemen were simply a preview now takes center stage. That which the martyred saints awaited is now seen in breathtaking imagery. It is the day of judgment in this passage, the great catastrophic end to world history. Paul, remember, said God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And it will be a terror, a day of terror to the wicked, but a day of rejoicing For believers, this world once judged Christ, but on that day he will judge the world. And it may seem to many as if justice does not matter in this life. And yet God's forbearance with sin is not the same thing as his forgiveness of sin. There is this day that God has fixed on which he will vindicate the glory of his holy name. And this judgment will be universal as everyone who ever lived will stand before him. And this judgment will be formal as the celestial books will be opened and evidence on every one of us will be presented. And this judgment will be impartial as Christ weighs each one of us in the scale. And this judgment will be exact in that all things will be scrutinized, no sin overlooked, no cup of cold water forgotten. And this judgment will be final. It will be final as the Lord passes sentence from which there will be no appeal. We're told that before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. To those on his right, he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To those on his left, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, the Apostle John is allowed to see the dread and the terror and the awe and the consternation of this day. And the final note of history is struck in one great, awesome, punishing event. To the unbelieving mass of humanity who rejected Christ, this will be terrifying. That unbelieving mass is exceedingly numerous, a vast horde of unbelievers, because we're told by our Lord himself that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. By contrast, the number of true believers rejoicing on that day will be relatively small. Because our Lord tells us that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. A narrow gate, a hard way, only few saved is how Jesus describes Christianity. And I think this text impresses with the urgency that the terror of that day creates in every single one of the unbelievers. What confronts us here is a symbolic portrait of the consummation, and what John is doing is using stock-and-trade Old Testament imagery to describe the destruction of the universe. That day is associated often with great upheavals in the natural world. And this is how the prophet Joel announced the final judgment that's meted out by God. You may remember this in chapter two of his prophecy. Joel says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Does it sound familiar? For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi describes this awesome day as one that that will burn like a furnace. Any Jew familiar with the Old Testament would be familiar with this kind of description. And whenever he thought of final judgment, he did so in terms like these. For John's readers, Judgment Day was not some strange teaching. It had been predicted long before John wrote his epistle his gospel, his revelation. It was common knowledge. Jude chapter 1 tells us Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. It was common knowledge. And John uses symbols like 24 elders and four living creatures and four horsemen. And these symbols are at least partially figurative. They imply great upheavals in the created order. And I'll tell you, on the horizon of history, there are monumental political and societal changes coming, the likes of which no one here can even conceive of. It points to the literal dissolution and ruin of the present universe because, as the angel said in Luke 1, nothing will be impossible with God. He can roll it up like a garment. And the point is that the Lamb's wrath that day will be terrible and complete. The Apostle John tells us in verse 12 that there was a great earthquake referring to violent upheavals and convulsions opening up chasms in the earth. Mountains sinking and valleys rising, lakes and ponds drying up and boulders being split in two. And all of this imagery symbolizes an enormous change and agitation. In fact, the collapse of nations and empires. He goes on to declare the sun became black as sackcloth. Now sackcloth sackcloth, of course, was a coarse black cloth commonly made of hair. And it symbolized mourning. And so the sun itself is clothed in sadness as if it were mourning the state of the earth. And again, it's an emblem of great calamity. Even the celestial bodies grieve. And he goes on to say the full moon became like blood. And of course, the dark red color of the moon symbolizes war and bloodshed and distress It's the sad and doleful companion of the sun grieving over the earth's ruin. He goes on. The stars of the sky fell to the earth so that both the regularity and the reliability of the cosmos is assumed. It's what sailors depend on. And yet the stars being loosed from their orbits no longer remain in their places. Like figs shaken by a storm, they fall from the sky as the universe disintegrates. And it probably represents the ease with which the earthly leaders are dislodged. And then John makes the observation that the sky vanished in verse 14. You and I both know, I think, that ancient peoples considered heaven as a solid, stable vault. What can shake the heavens? And yet earthquakes and sun being blackened and moon being darkened and sky crumpling like a piece of paper. It all denotes changes that are so great, it's as if the very heavens are being swept away. And finally, the apostle asserts that every mountain and island was removed. Things that appear immovable to us and unchanging are swiftly and easily removed. And such graphic language, again, describes the complete dissolution of the cosmic system. It's an emphasis here. Isaiah 24 confirms that the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. It's amazing. And then John uses this inclusive list of categories to signify all the unbelievers of the earth. Did you notice that? He references the kings of the earth and the great ones, meaning all of those who are in authority. He references the generals and the rich and the powerful, referencing all of those who exert influence. And then he references everyone, slave and free, meaning all those in whose lungs there's breath. Everyone. John lists seven classes indicating the completeness so that no enemy of God, no matter what his position in society, will escape the terrors of that day. Everyone. No one is exempt from judgment. Nobody is immune from the danger. Everyone. Kings, in common with the lowest slaves, will be filled with terror. And the entire godless world of unbelievers will be seized with fear. And so fierce will be God's anger that they will try to hide themselves to no avail. There will be no place to hide. There will be no way of escape from God's wrath. They'll long for escape in fear. They'll seek for it in death. They'll call upon the mountains and the rocks to kill them. Because the terror of the judgment day is so great. That death is preferable than facing it. With the same language, Isaiah the prophet predicted the horror of the final judgment when he said this, People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And so stricken with terror, they will seek to flee from the grim reality of judgment. That's why Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. (laughs) Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. My wife, Linda, told me a long time ago, there's only one rock that covers Christ. There is no other shield, no other shelter, no other protection from the wrath of the lamb. And nowhere else in the Bible do we find the phrase, the wrath of the lamb. This is it. Who ever heard of a lamb being angry? The lamb is one of the gentlest creatures, I'm told. Isaiah refers to the wrath of the Lord, and Job refers to the wrath of the Almighty. How great then must be that evil which evokes such a strong response, the wrath of the Lamb. It's the first time we encounter this idea of a Lamb's wrath, the Lamb who was slain, so that the same Christ who suffered in humility now punishes in vengeance. And how far removed is this from that cute little baby that's idolized in all of those nativity scenes? It'll be a day of reckoning, a day from which no human is able to escape. And the symbolism in this passage is meant to convey the universal terror and alarm and consternation of the world. And with this solemn text, and I know that it's solemn, God affirms the certainty of the unbeliever's doom. On that final day, he will reintroduce the chaos into the great work of creation. He brought order out of the chaos. It comes back. The lights in the heaven are quenched. The firmament is rolled up. The earth is formless and void. And the Lord will cleanse his temple of all that is sinful, corrupt, evil, and unholy. Now, I want to say this. All of this imagery that's associated with the sixth seal is not meant to startle or frighten believers. (laughs) Christ's aim here is to warn us of danger, exhort us to patience, arouse us to hope, assure us of victory, tell us of the end of history, that he's conquered his enemies and the public display of his triumph is coming. That's what he's trying to do. And the stark apocalyptic symbolism is intended to assure us of the end. Don't be frightened if you're a believer. Our king is sovereign, and he is supreme, and he will judge the world in righteousness. But God is unwilling to keep us in the dark, so he gives us a true and vivid depiction of that day. It is sobering. No child of God, no follower of Christ, no spirit-filled believer will endure these judgments. All the pain and all the dread and all the terror depicted here have already been endured for us at the cross. Those terrible judgments that were supposed to be meted out on us were concentrated in one man at Calvary. And this chapter describes in lurid detail that from which you and I, as believers, are saved. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 1, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So what this passage teaches, first of all, is how miserable and how tragic that great day will be for unbelievers. Let's face it. John Flavel says, They that are Christless now will be speechless, helpless, and hopeless then. Their heads will bow, their backs will bend, their knees will buckle, and their hearts will melt. It will be for them a day of unprecedented terror and unending gloom. The ground will heave, the sun will darken, the moon will redden, the stars will fall, the sky will vanish, the mountains and islands will disappear, and all these prisoners will be summoned before the bar of divine justice." And how dreadful and difficult will be this solemn day. That's why we must not go before the great white throne without an advocate. Because you know something, Satan will rise up and he will accuse you of crimes against God. He is the accuser of the brethren, by the way. And conscience will indict you for both public iniquity and secret sins. Your conscience and mine. And your earthly companions will bear witness against you on that day for your lack of brotherly love. And all those who drew you into sin and all those who were drawn by you into sin will testify against you. Your teachers and your parents and your siblings and your friends will give cross-examination about you. Everyone whom you tempted and defrauded and abused and neglected will rise up on that day against you. And the Spirit himself will bear witness against you for so often resisting his influence and the cumulative effect of all this testimony will be overwhelming. And there will be nothing that you can say. Speechless. Mute before the divine judge. There will be nothing of your own to plead because you and I both deserve condemnation. We deserve it. And the fiends of hell, they could drag you trembling into darkness from the bar of justice. You deserve never again to enjoy the slightest degree of mercy or comfort. That's the dreadful plight of the unbeliever. No hope and without God. It's something which every sinful child of Adam richly deserves. But then Christ, your advocate and mine, will step forward and he'll put his arm around you. And with the scars of his cross clearly visible, he will say, Father, this one is mine. With my life, I fulfilled that law. And with my blood, I satisfied that justice. And on the basis of my merit applied to him, you can forgive him and you can accept him. Father, you may bestow on him the promised gift of eternal life. And then, before the entire assembled universe, he will be openly acknowledged and acquitted by God himself. Welcomed into heaven, embraced as an heir at home with the Lord. And forever and ever, he will rejoice in the presence of the Lamb who was slain. And so what this does, secondly, is exhort you and I to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Of all the concerns in this life, don't you see that this is the one thing that's necessary if all this is true? There is no concern so solemn and so important and so eternally significant as this. I'm glad you're here tonight to hear this. What's the state of your soul? Young people, what's the state of your soul? How is it between you and Christ? Old people, what's the state of your soul? Do you trust in and rely upon him whom to know is eternal life? Because there is salvation in no one else, because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let's not be lulled into complacency by thinking that that's ah, just all going to work out. Don't do that. Such a laissez-faire attitude contradicts the teaching of Scripture. Because the only way, the only way to escape the wrath of the Lamb, as we've seen symbolized in this passage, is by faith in Jesus Christ. And there are many counterfeit faiths. We've gone over this before. You know what they are. Historical faith, which believes in the facts of history but not the beauty of Christ. Miraculous faith, which is capable of moving mountains but it has no love and it gets you nothing. Demon faith, which believes in Christ but just trembles at his awesome power. So the only, saving, the only faith that saves is saving faith which receives and rests upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works both to will and to work for your salvation in your heart. And let me just say this as we near an end. The most sobering aspect of final judgment is its finality for all eternity. There will be no reprieve. There will be no respite. There will be no relief of any kind or degree. The punishment of the wicked unbelieving will be everlasting and unalterable once the day of grace has been spent Once the spirit of grace has been resisted, once the means of grace have been abused and neglected, the unbeliever's doom will be sealed forever. And we're told that he'll go away into eternal punishment, an endless darkness to be felt. And so I ask you with the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But I also think this highlights the greatness of that salvation which accomplished, which was accomplished by Christ, doesn't it? You know, great was Noah's deliverance from the flood, but that's nothing to deliverance from the flood of wrath. Great was Lot's preservation from the ruin of Sodom, but that's nothing to deliverance from everlasting ruin. And great was Israel's exodus from Egyptian bondage, but that's nothing compared to Deliverance from the slavery of sin. Our salvation is greater in part because of that from which we're saved. Which is why Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus knew He describes the sufferings that await the impenitent sinner. Those who endure the second death will be eaten by worms and devoured by fire, whatever that means. And again, the most sobering feature of that punishment is that it will never, ever end. Jesus suffered under the infinite wrath of God so that the believer wouldn't have to. That's a great salvation. And it's greater because of where we're going, nothing less than heaven. It's a place of peace and purity and wholeness as the miracles were meant to illustrate. No blindness, no deformity, no pain or grief, no death, no darkness. A place of light and blessedness and the holy presence of the triune God. And it's even greater because of why God saved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loves us. He loved us so much that he punished his own son to save us. Today he offers this great salvation to anyone who will trust in Christ. So ask yourself as we close, have I believed in Jesus Am I prepared for the day of judgment? Let's find refuge in the only mediator between God and man, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are greatly sobered by the descriptions of that final day which John gives us in his book. It's not easy to consider, especially because we understand the finality of it all. But we are grateful to you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured this awful punishment in our place and has secured for us believers a place in heaven with you forever and ever. And all we can do is say thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, To connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.